Okay, welcome back to the Paperless uh, Federalist. My name is Justin. And I am Kerry. All right, and we are back. We are live. We are here in 2020. We have survived thus far. Um, and we are uh, coming at you on Election Eve, November 2nd, 2020. Uh, recording, and then we're going to throw this one up uh, out there for the masses to consume. Um, thought we would do a special, just sort of one-off episode here to talk about um, the election, talk about specifically maybe even the Electoral College, because that is probably going to be a topic that a lot of people are going to have in their minds. Um, and and maybe we could sort of put a little information out there for you. Uh, Carrie, I know that when I, after the last election four years ago, and I said, hey, why don't we do a podcast about the paperless federalists? Um, I certainly thought we would be done with the, with the Federalist Papers by now, um, and that is clearly not what has happened. They are a morass. <laughs> they suck you in, and they don't let you go. No, it's just like a, like a New York mob family that just keeps pulling you back in. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, kids, we're going there. <laughs> well, I was making like a like a reference to I don't know. I'm sure it's a movie. Every time I'm gone, they, they just pull me back in. You know, um, I'm sure that's appropriate. A, Hamilton that, was a New Yorker. I there you go. People yeah. should give us that. There you go. All right. Um, <laughs> so, anyways, so last time, last election, after what happened, there was a lot of talk about the electoral college and and could uh, a lot of the electors sort of band together and elect somebody else uh, and be faithless electors uh, is the term more than ever before tried you know so we're gonna we're gonna touch about that let's give a quick uh, sort of brush over about what how the electoral college works and then sort of talk about it as a system prepared for that topic all right and then I also thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about faithless electors and some recent Supreme Court case that came down that talks about faithless electors as well. So I'm not heavily prepared for that. All right. Well, I'm a little more prepared in that and that. So um, all right, because I, I there was a case uh, earlier this year that uh, is interesting, and then some other developments about about the electoral college and how it might move work moving forward. So in that case, I guess summarize in chief. Do you think you could give us a quick, you know, thirty thousand view foot view of the electoral college? Yes, I've I've got subtitles so i so I'll, I'll just tell you what i could do but i'll do one of i'll do the one first okay so i've got history i've got mm-hmm. process i've got um justifications for the electoral college criticism of the electoral college college amendments that have influenced it uh the issue of contingent elections and then the intentions of the founders but i'm just gonna give you history now let's just start with history yeah. a la carte from then on a la carte okay so, <laughs> uh briefly some history so the Electoral College is established in the actual Constitution itself. It's not some like just law that came after the fact. It's in Article 2. Section 1, right up near the top, basically says that every state um, gets to appoint its own electors. And the electors, the algebraic formula, well, not really algebra, I guess, the mathematical formula <laughs> for determining how many darn electors we have are going to be equal to the total number of senators plus the total number of representatives that the states have. So there's 100 senators, two per state, and there's 435 representatives. So that's 535. And then in 1961, there was an amendment to the Constitution to give three to D.C. So that's where we get our current number of 538. And a majority of that is, of course, 270. That's where we get the magic number of 270, uh, is being what you need to win. Or initially, 
the states themselves chose the electors in the Electoral College, but very quickly it started to shift over to a popular vote where the people would vote and then the electors would have to follow the vote of the people. Uh, so by 1824, there was only six states that still had their legislators appoint the electors. By 1832, just eight years later, only state that had not transitioned over to popular vote was South Carolina. And since 1880, all state electors are, are elected based on the popular vote in one way or the other. The only sort of exception is, or exceptions, are Maine and Nebraska have been toying around with split voting where part of their vote of their electors is based on that same methodology, mm -hmm. how the state votes as a whole. Another part is based on who gets the plurality of votes in each of their congressional districts. Yeah, so, um, so if I'm a candidate in Nebraska and I win one of the congressional districts, I get that get one. That elector. Get that elector. Uh, but if I capture the majority of the popular vote in the state, I also pick up the two electoral votes for the senators um, for that are equivalent to the two or they're apportioned to the state as a whole for the senators. So that's yes. that's how Maine and Nebraska work. Exactly. So um, on the topic of faithless, faithless electors, in 26 of the states, as well as D.C., there is some court sort of legal consequence for electors or for electors who vote mm -hmm. differently than the popular vote that's grown over the years. And there's a there's a variety of mechanisms. Sometimes it's just yeah. fines, and it could be you know a, a, a tougher violation. As far as the history of faithless electors, there have been a number of elections in which there has been a single faithless elector who's voted differently than their state. 2016 was the only time, the only election in which there was more than one. There were seven so-called faithless electors for the presidency and six for the vice presidency. One last uh, historical process issue on uh, the Electoral College is that the current procedure since, uh, I believe, 1804 is that there are two, when, when they officially do the voting, there's two separate ballots one for the president and one for the vice presidency, and they're counted independently. Whereas before that, they used to be the first place finisher is the president, the second place is the vice president. And I mentioned that as relevant because, again, who's our main Federalist paper author, Alexander Hamilton? And one of the plot lines in that musical was, of course, Jefferson becoming the president and Burr becoming the vice president originally um, because Burr was the second place finisher. Uh, and that, you know, despite the fact that there was animosity between them. Mm -hmm. And so well, they're that, from that election different political was, parties. was, was result in yeah. a change where they're like, no, we want a more unitary executive where mm -hmm. they're sort of on the same page and not at odds with one another. So that's my brief history. That's okay. that module. All right. So let's, let's talk then. Let's say that when it's all said and done, there is n neither person – um, secures a majority of electors. Nobody breaks over that 270 threshold. Um, what's the next step then? What happens then? Do you know? Well, you're going now into the process module, which is just to re briefly tell you what happens on a practical level. Mm -hmm. Once the electors, once the uh, state voting has all happened, 
on the first Monday after the second Wednesday of December. You guys all go to the state capitals and they cast their votes. And then the first week of January, um, it's usually January 6th at 1 o'clock, the vice president opens all the state votes and gives them to four different announcers who announce the votes to the a joint meeting of the House and the Senate. And what's something that's actually interesting about that is the vice president then is the one who announces the, is the official result. And so it, throughout history, there have been actually four vice presidents who have had to announce their own failure to become president, yeah. the most recent being Al Gore. Al Gore. Saying, hey, I officially lose. <laughs> And and here's so here's 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 what's interesting about that is when the electoral votes are are being counted, yes, uh, it is possible for um, an objection to occur to a particular yes. vote or a particular set of votes from a state. But you need you need one representative from a house and one representative from the senate to sign off and say yes, we both are objecting to this individual elector or this group of electors from this state, and yes. and they want to throw them out. Al Gore actually had to preside over objections in his own election as the president of the Senate. So, <laughs> although none of the objections, and he, he, he denied all the objections, so he didn't, there was no shenanigans pulled, but that was also sort of a um, um, unique kind of situation. So in, in that situation, though, when objections are raised, my understanding is that what happens if it's sort of certified that, yes, we have a valid objection, the joint session of Congress where they're counting the electors has to break, the House yes. has to go debate about whether or not the objection, they agree with the objection. The Senate goes and debates about whether they agree with the objection, and then they come back. And once it's resolved, then they can reconvene the joint session of Congress where they go back to counting the electors. Yes. I, get, I get that right? The only way for yeah. an objection to be to take effect and those votes to not be counted is if both the House and the Senate agree. Uh, and according to my research, there's been two times when it's happened that there's been votes on objections. One was in 1969, the other was 2005. In both cases, the House voted for the objections and the Senate rejected them. Um, and so that was really the only two times. Quite frankly, in our polarized times and the polarized elections throughout history, I'm actually surprised that that tool has not been used more frequently. To me, that's somewhat heartening because it seems to me that would be like some low-hanging fruit for someone to try to put a close election into doubt by, you know, using the objection process, you know, similar to in some ways how the filibuster has been used and mm -hmm. evolved throughout history from going from something that's rarely used to very frequently used. Well, um, but yeah, you were asking the question about what happens if they don't get over the finish line. Mm -hmm. um, that is what's called um, procedurally the contingent election. But mm -hmm. more popularly, it's just known as, you know, the Congress deciding. Um, <laughs> so what right. happens there is if no one gets a majority, then the House of Representatives votes, gets to vote on up to the top three candidates, which with each state delegation getting one vote. So the state delegations is, you know, presumably have to vote among themselves. And then whoever gets the most votes among the House gets to appoint the president. At the same time, the Senate votes on the vice president. And if there is a deadlock there, where and that's, this has never happened, but if the House cannot decide on a Senate on, on a president by the 20th of January, Inauguration Day, then the vice president-elect is the president until they can decide. And if there's uh -huh. no vice president-elect, the speaker of the house gets to decide. So let me let me um, let me stop you there. So the um and what you're, you're what you're talking about is a deadlock election in section three, the twentieth amendment 
uh, talks about the House of Representatives, if they haven't chosen the president-elect by noon Eastern on January 20th, then the vice president-elect becomes acting president until the House gets selects a president. Section 3 also specifies that Congress may statutorily provide for who will be acting president if neither a president-elect nor a vice president-elect is in time for the inauguration. And under the Presidential Succession Act of 1947, that is the Speaker of the House. So, in today's world, if there's a deadlocked election and neither the House nor the Senate can then mm-hmm. elect a president-elect or a vice president-elect under the 20th Amendment and then subsequently under the Presidential Secession Act of Secession Act of 1947, the current Speaker of the House, which I believe is Nancy Pelosi. Well, I know it's Nancy Pelosi, but I mean... Uh, I'm, I'm, it's it the, it's, the newly, it'd be the newly elected Speaker of the House, if yes. It if it flipped, so yeah, yeah. It'd be Nancy Pelosi or yeah. whoever. Or whoever. Whoever with the new Congress, the new Speaker under yeah. the new Congress, um, would would become the... Uh, uh, and it's not expected to flip, so it probably would still be Nancy Pelosi yeah. under the new Congress. Um, so hypothetically, that would be how we could end up with a President Pelosi for a time, or President yeah. Pence, or President Harris. Um, yeah. I bet not a lot of people have that the, the forefront of their... <laughs> That's not how your bingo card for possibilities <laughs> at all, but right. <laughs> um, that has never happened. But there have been a couple of occasions in which it's gone to the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, the I think it's just two. The one time we've already mentioned Jefferson and Burr, where mm-hmm. there was literally I think it was like thirty-five ballots to finally mm-hmm. it was tied there in the house. That was the close we got. Thirty-five ballots until somebody broke, and their reasoning was if they didn't break the tie then the union was in danger. And the other one was the famous, um, I believe the hell, the Hayes Tilden episode mm-hmm. where it went to the house to decide. All right. Uh, when it ended up result in, resulted in, uh, Rutherford B. Rutherford B. Hayes, mm. uh, being a point. No, wait, that was, that's not correct. That's not it. There was another one. Uh, there was Jackson. It was Andrew mm-hmm. Jackson. Hayes Tilden was 1876. And in that one, um, Hayes ended up winning by a single electoral vote. Okay. So we've had some close calls before, some really close ones, including times when it's gone to the House. And so that's basically an entire overview of the history process up to and including the tiebreaker system. Yeah. And there have been a number of amendments that have adjusted the system over the years. Um, you know, the 18th and 12th Amendment is the one that, you know, tried to solve the problem of the uh, Jefferson Burr issue by having people who didn't like each other be president and vice mm-hmm. president. And that was, so there's independent ballots for president and vice president. And then the, uh, the 23rd amendment in 1961 is what uh, gave the district of Columbia three electors of its own. In, in addition to the ones that the States have. All right. So now we're going to get to the part that, that I like the best. Throwing rocks. Throwing rocks. I got a right. huge sack of electoral uh, rock-sized rocks to start chucking here. Um, okay. I am. I am just not a fan. I've never been a You're fan. <laughs> I've never liked the system. Uh, mm-hmm. I was that guy who, when I was twelve years old in seventh grade social studies, you know, raised my hand when I was like, "So your vote doesn't count then?" And the social mm-hmm. studies teacher said, "No, no, no, it counts." I'm like, "Wait, wait, wait." <laughs> it's an indirect election you know indirect. i'm just uh just i am i am not a not a not a fan and let me let me run break down my top so many reasons why okay mm-hmm. obviously the one that pops in most people's mind is that somebody can win the elect uh the the, the popular vote 
total number of votes nationally mm-hmm. and still lose the election. It's happened in 1876. But it is very rare. 1888. 2016. Uh, so mm-hmm. two recent modern elections. Um, everybody remembers Bush v. Gore and then uh, Trump v. Clinton. The spread in the Clinton was, I think, ended up being a little over 2 million votes, whereas the spread in the Bush-Gore situation was closer to about 500,000 votes. So that's that's criticism number one. The other one is, I often hear people defend the Electoral College when they say, oh, well, it ensures that the candidates will go to all of the states, and it won't just become sort of like this sort of coastal election where they just bounce between major population centers, and it forces them to spend time in Iowa or forces them to spend time in Montana or, you know, South Dakota or someplace like that. But mm-hmm. really, if you really stop and look at it, even in this election or, or, or in, you know, like if you could, I was looking at a graphic here from Bush Kerry, you know, mm-hmm. they spent almost all of their time, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Florida, Michigan, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. Iowa, um, Minnesota. The swing states. The swing states. Uh, Nevada. Arizona, yep. Colorado. Okay, so instead of instead of spending all of their time and effort in major population centers, they're spending all their time and effort in, in you know about ten states uh, in each election mm-hmm. breakdown, and you know so that is the, you know and the concept of swing states then okay is another issue. It, it's well, let me let me get to that to that point in my outline here. Yeah, it's, you know, it's obvious like it's, that you know the process itself can sometimes determine. And sway the importance of different places. I mean, it's as true in the general election as it as it is in the primaries with states so, like Iowa. If yeah. not for the Iowa caucus, who the hell among politicians would care about ethanol? Yeah, nobody. But so, because of Iowa, everyone does. Let me let me go to another another reason. Okay, and and this is the one that really bugs me is that a person's value, an individual citizen's value, as far as their weight, is is more important in like say wyoming than it is in california Mm -hmm. okay because of the number of electors per person is 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 much let me say this backwards the number of u.s citizens per electoral vote is much greater in california than it is in wyoming and those are sort of the two ends of the extreme right um and then there are other states that fall in that spectrum and it just doesn't seem fair that one person's vote somewhere should count more than the other person's vote somewhere else I, I'm just so not a fan of that of that that effect of the system. The other is that arguably maybe discourages turnout and participation. I mean, if you're living in a state like Montana or or Mississippi that are perpetually red, and you happen to be maybe a Democrat leaning towards the left end of the spectrum, why would you ever go vote? I mean, there's no shot that your vote is really going to affect anything. Well, okay. What about local elections? I mean, that would. Well, okay. No, no, no. I meant, but I meant on the presidential level. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, they can go, and they, I'm sure that you know local elections and judges, and I mean, all you know, state ballot issues, all that is yes, absolutely. But when it comes to the you know deciding the president, like, I mean, when's the last time Montana ever ever went red, blue, or or mm-hmm. or Mississippi when's the last went time blue? New York went red. Exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you know, yeah. or hey, I you know I was in um, lived in Illinois for a while. And I know that there are a lot of diehard Republicans in the south half of that state that are not happy about the fact that Chicago just yeah. wipes out their vote. You know what I mean? That yeah. that state is divided. The same in, thing with New York City and upstate mm-hmm, New York, to, you know, to a lesser extent. Uh, but there's a huge. I mean, Chicago's like the third most populous city in the nation. So when it 
Cass, you know, Cook County mm-hmm. just hits hits the the scales. There's, I mean, yeah. there just are not enough Republicans in that state to to yeah. to balance it out. So, and that's you know that's true in every non swing state. In my own state of Kentucky, yeah, a, a perpetually red state, you know, has cities that are generally blue, Louisville, mm-hmm. Lexington, you know, but their vote is out is similarly outweighed by the vast swaths of Kentucky that are very red. So, um, another one here. You've got dis- well, before you move on from that, I wanted to ask you though, mm-hmm. is like, so I hear what you're saying about. You know, does your vote va- does your mo- vote matter on a national level if you, if you know you're not going to flip a state? You know, I live in a mm-hmm. state that, you know, probably you know, if you're a Democrat, it won't really you have no chance of flipping the state. My counterpoint would be that, you know, while while the individual, you know, in a, in a state that is perpetually the opposite you know, electoral color as they'd prefer might feel like, okay, they're excluded from really flipping their state. Presidential elections tend to be, especially if we went with a popular vote method and just got rid of the electoral college, um, presidential elections tend to be oftentimes six or seven digit number differences between candidates where an individual vote is really objectively not is not as influential compared to an individual's vote at the local level where party is often not as detailed, and also the margins are not smaller and in our time as evidenced by the fact by the increasing amount of money that's being spent on close on on local elections and i don't have those stats in front of me right now but i don't feel like it's something that's heavily contested you know state legislatures state judges really are at sort of the cutting edges of what's deciding a lot of important factors up to and including right now, um, whether by design or historical accident, a lot of the everyday restrictions, facts of every life people are dealing with under COVID are more decided from state officials than federal officials. So yeah. that's the counterpoint I would argue there as far as value of someone's vote it's you know oh, well, I'm not it's saying not all that, or nothing with Fed. We're still getting. I apologize for everybody. We're we're doing this, and if we get some feedbacks or little things, uh, we're having a little bit of technical difficulties. But just bear with us, and we're, we're going to do what we can. Um, it's a 2020 thing. It, it is. This is you know <laughs> nothing works. Uh, we're in a post-apocalyptic world. It seems like so. The <laughs> I'm not suggesting that just because you happen to be you're you happen to be living in a state in which. Mm-hmm. It is uh, the the presidential outcome, electoral college outcome, is opposite of your your predisposition. Mm-hmm. That that there's no value in voting for anything ever. It was mm-hmm. just that on with regard to the the presidential election, you may feel sort of disenfranchised and think, why would I yeah. bother going? Because there's it's never in my you know five lifetimes am I ever going to see this thing you know flip to flip. to be to, to be along with me. Now, the other thing, another reason why I don't like the electoral college, disenfranchisement of US citizens in US territories, Puerto Rico, Northern Mariana Islands, Marina Islands, uh, the US Virgin Islands, America Samoa, mm-hmm. Guam, all US mm-hmm. citizens no say 
<laughs> no say, mm-hmm. you know, and and I'm pretty sure they're taxed too, which you know, hmm, I feel like we fought a war about no taxation without representation. So you know, <laughs> we're gonna have the Samoas rise up against this probably. <laughs> well, I'm not worried about Guam, but my point yeah. is just it just is a little hypocritical. So um, well, I mean, that could know. also be resolved by doing a similar solution as with DC. Giving yeah. them some number of electoral votes. Sure. So sure. that doesn't require the electoral college to be eliminated. No, no. That's no. an option. That's true. That's true. But as it stands right now, with what we've got, mm. okay, that's that's pretty much it. You know. Well, then, let me take you outside of your... the other. The other one ahead, is you know, ahead. like you know, Pepsi and Coke are never going to allow a third a third party cola brand to acquire any kind of market share. In much the same way, the Democrat and the Republican parties are never going to give any oxygen to a third party, a viable third party. Ever so they're gonna you know but collectively have disappeared and replaced. I hmm? mean, there's no Whig party anymore. No, no, no. But I mean, there's the Green Party or the whatever mm-hmm. party. You know, but then you know. So uh, for those who don't realize, but is that like, a problem of the Electoral College or is that a problem of well the factions. the system of yeah. government yeah. where okay, in, your secretary of states or, are and having a elected officials military yeah. system of government. I think that that has more to do with it than electoral college. Yeah, but because if if you have two senators, then mm-hmm. no matter what you do with the electoral college, it's always going to be winner take all because you only have two senators as a state, mm-hmm. and it's going to be your two largest vote getters. Well, it's going to be your largest vote getter each election. So I think even if you eliminate the electoral college, it won't do anything to change the two party system. The only thing that that replaces parties in the American history in American history tends to be. Another one comes up to just devour the currently existing party and subsume it, mm-hmm. like the Republicans did to the Whigs in 1860. Okay. Do you, do you believe that if we got rid of the electoral college, that it no. would change it? No, no, well, I mean, it may. I, I don't know. I guess I've never really given it a ton of thought. I just, it's just another. I feel like both parties work the system really well, mm-hmm. and part of what they do is, is 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 at least in part to ensure that there's no room, there's no oxygen that's uh, out there for a third party. I, I won't you disagree know? with you there. I just think that's not an electoral college issue. That's yeah. that's just part of the structure of how, especially the Senate is elected. You know, because for yeah. all intents and purposes, the election of a U.S. senator for a state is the whole state. So that's in the state. That's not a, a. That's not really a, an electoral college's elected senate. It's your whole state. It's your whole body, body politic, mm-hmm. and so that would not getting in the way of like the Green Party, the Libertarian Party, or the Constitution Party becoming mm-hmm. a, having their senator elected. The problem for them is that it is a direct thing. There, there is no electors, and there's a parliamentary system. It's winner take all for that yeah. one spot. I mean, to be fair, there are some arguments for keeping or maintaining some form of the electoral college or keeping the electoral college as it is, as it stands. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so uh, you know, one of them is the idea of you know just maintaining the nation's federal character, right? Like, um, if you have one national just popular vote instead of the because f- we are a federal republic, right? So we have 50 independent state elections for the decision of who's going to be the president. And if you get rid of that and you turn it into one national popular vote, you fundamentally change sort of a major underpinning of of who we are and how our government works. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, that's that's that. Uh, Another one is that, and I'm not really a fan of this one, 
But a lot of times people say, hey, look, you know, it really forces candidates to um, pay attention to minority groups in close states. So I don't know. I mean, to me, that just that's that sounds like a reason to get rid of it. Like, I, I don't think that it's it's healthy to just have politicians pander to minority groups in four mm-hmm. or five states every four years. Like, oh, mm-hmm. please, you know, Latinos, African-Americans come vote for me. Like, I, mm-hmm. like that's not I mean. Swinging around the block once every four years and making a bunch of promises is not a reason to keep the electoral college in my mind, but it's out there. People, the people say that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Um, an interesting one though that I had not thought of is, and this has never happened, is you know what if the president elect dies, right? Um, mm-hmm. And in you know between the time that they're elected to the time where they're maybe going to take office, and if 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 you had just a national election with millions of votes. Um, and no system in place uh, to deal with that sort of contingency. I mean, on a long enough time horizon, everything's going to happen. So uh, someday that would come up. And if you have just a national election, that could cause some real chaos. Whereas if you have a set of electors, uh, you know, they could conceivably get in a room together and figure out what to do. Um, so that, but I feel like somehow we could we could still address that. You know, even and that's when we would first see the objection process be very heavily used by the <laughs> Senate and the House. Well, so, to and, and the, let me ask you, mm-hmm. you know, and do you, in your disdain for the Electoral College, do you have a similar feeling about the Senate? Do you feel like there should only be the House and not the Senate? Because really, they mirror each other in that, like, yeah. I because the Senate is everything you say about the Electoral College mm-hmm. could also be said of the Senate. The Senate, there are two senators for Wyoming. There are mm-hmm. two senators for California. Yeah, each senator so, from Wyoming elects far fewer people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it represents far fewer people than each senator from California. Right. And so this was the grand compromise, sort of, or not the the grand compromise, but this was the idea of the two the two branch. Uh, the, the bicameral legislature, right? You know, mm-hmm. the, to satisfy the, the small states and the big states uh, in order to get them to sign on to the Constitution. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. that we will kind of get into this more in depth as far as the history of the Electoral College and how it mirrors um, mm-hmm. that same type of system and compromise for the establishment mm-hmm. of the legislature on a federal level under the Constitution and why Madison said, mm-hmm. yeah, let's use sort of that similar modeling for the Electoral College when mm-hmm. we go to talk about that when we hit those papers later on. But yeah. to, to your point... Paper 39 and 68, I think. Are the yeah, ones to touch on so, so to your point or to your question, I will say this. Practically speaking, the Senate is about to turn into a mini house of representatives. I mean, they're getting rid of almost every one of their <laughs> institutions. You know, um, you know, they keep changing the rules. there still will only be two of them per state, and that's what yeah. here is the Electoral College. You know, I, I'm not a fan of how the Senate is able to grind grind things to a halt. Although, at the same time, I can very easily understand the need to prevent, to slow government so that it doesn't just slingshot back and forth with the whim of the day, you know, mm-hmm. um, and you end up with some sort of legislative whiplash. Yeah. It's very intentionally uh, you know, not a purely populist institution in the yeah. way that the House is. Yes. So that was, you know, the Senate was always referred to, not always, but I mean, it's commonly referred to as the saucer that cools 
the, the cup of mm. the house, right? So the house is a boiling yeah. cup of water and you put it on the cool saucer mm -hmm. and then you get a nice cup of tea in the end. You know, they're talking about getting rid of the filibuster now. And I can understand the arguments to get rid of it, but at the same time, the whole point of the Senate was to make sure that any legislation that made it through had a majority of appeal. Um, and I think you know, you know that's a reason. There's there are reasonable arguments to be made that the Senate, in reality, has not fulfilled the obligations of the Senate in theory. Yeah. But as far as the Senate in theory, that's that's the question is because. I think it's hard to I think it's hard to argue that you should abolish the electoral college without also taking that next logical step and saying and we should also abolish yeah. the Senate because so, their structure is identical they're identically not you know one person one vote in the way yeah. that they're structured intentionally So this is what I will say I'm not a, a massive historian of a uh, student of history of the entire world. I know that mm, there have course, been, I know that there have been governments that have direct popular votes. Yes. And I know that they have failed and, and I and don't some have succeeded. And, okay. Some have succeeded. But I don't know if the reason for the downfalls is because of the populism that can come that can take hold in in a direct popular type of democracy mm. you know you know just popular vote democracy mm. and if maybe having this electoral college system prevents that sort of just runaway populism um from from corrupting the whole government as a whole and and that may be a a a reason to keep it around if that's actually true. Uh, as far as as far as you know, electoral college and how I feel versus the the Senate. I guess to me, the electoral college is is a very once every four years kind of thing, and it has such an impact mm -hmm. on 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 the executive branch, and 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 all of government then moving forward because whoever wins the presidency sort of sets the agenda for the for the country, and mm -hmm. and whereas. In the Senate, um, you know, it's on this bill or that bill or whether or not judicial nominee moves forward or not and that kind of thing. And its its impacts is is uh, more diffused over many, many, many different things. Mm -hmm. And so it's not it's not but as with, it's not as crystallized as it is for the presidency. So, but with the abolition of things like the filibuster, yeah, it's becoming more wide ranging in its authority. Very similarly to, you know, what you were described to the. Electoral College. I think my biggest concern with the in, with the individuals who have argued for the abolition of the Electoral College in the heat of the historical moment is the thinking that it's just this thing, this detached institution in and of itself, that you can just discard easily without looking at anything else, as uh -huh. if it's disconnected to the entire structure of how the framers structured things. And I, I think that you can't do that without, without putting it in its context, because again, it's a mirror of how everything else in America is set up as far as how we run things. You know, it's like it just as the house and the Senate are the compromise between direct democracy and, you know, an indirect democracy in the Senate, the electoral college 
is that compromise between this Jeffersonian populist direct election and the opposite, which was the idea of, well, the state legislatures mm-hmm. should appoint the electors and they should elect the president. You know, again, the Jeffersonian direct, direct, direct democracy approach, yes, it's just whatever the people want, wherever they are. Mm-hmm. And that's that. Whereas the states... If they would have had their way, it wouldn't have been electoral college directed, you know, elected by the populace of the states. It would just be the legislature does it, and those electoral representatives. Their main concern then is, what are you going to do for my state? Um, and like so many things in American government, I think the statement of Churchill, you know, I think the strongest defense here is the Churchillian defense of. It's the worst idea except for everything else that could be tried. <laughs> you know, it's so, like so many things in America and American processes. It's not perfect, but it's the best we could probably do. But, I, but again, I think if you get rid of the electoral college, you can't stop there. You got to, you didn't have the burden of saying, OK, why are we not just a parliamentary system? Mm-hmm. Well, if your goal is direct democracy, lest you think. Mm hmm. The Electoral College. No, no, no. Filthy, filthy parliamentarian. No. (laughs) That the Electoral College is this arcane thing that is is has been decided and is done. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's just comes around every four years and has no current life and is not affecting uh and having new law being made as a result of it. Um Mm -hmm. we touched on it earlier. As of in the twenty sixteen election, there were uh, a handful of faithless electors. Now these are Mm -hmm. electors that came from the state. Um, who then attempted to vote um, differently than what the popular vote was in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe they were from uh, the state of Washington. Uh, and I think there were some also from Colorado. Um, and admittedly, I am not 100% um, mm-hmm. on this, but just give me a moment. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court in July of this year of 2020 um, handed down a decision in... Mm-hmm. Chiafalo, C-H-I-A-F-A-L-O, v. Washington. Okay. 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 Um, And this is interesting. Unanimous. 9-0. So Mm -hmm. I know we're used to the four or five splits and conservatives and, you know, liberal judges and all that. But this is... But there's a lot of things that are agreed on by everyone. Yeah. So what, what happened here was there were three electors from the state of Washington who uh, were violated their pledges in the 2016 election. The mm-hmm. uh, state of Washington was one of those states that require electors to pledge to follow the um, outcome of their state's popular vote. But okay. unlike other some other states who require pledges, the state of Washington had a penalty for failing to come follow through on that pledge. Okay. Uh, and they were fined like $1,000 um, for, for, for breaking their pledge. And so okay. the question was, could a state actually punish an elector for, for breaking their sort of nominal pledge? Mm-hmm. And on one side, you had people argue like, no, you know, the system was designed where the electors were going to be these, you know, people that went and gathered and decided what was best for the nation. And they were supposed to have this sort of free ability. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other side said, no, no, no. Like, you know, this is the electors, the whole they need to follow the will of the people, mm-hmm. um, especially our 225 plus year, you know, history yeah. of, of, of well, elections. It would seem also right? to be an issue of, 
what controls. Mm-hmm. Is there a fed, is federal law control or state law control on it? Yeah. It's a legal issue. That's what I would look at. So, in the end, the Supreme Court said, yeah, the state of Washington has the ability to enforce um, this penalty on on its electors. And in fact, mm-hmm. give me one second to find states are allowed to penalize an elector for breaking their pledge and for voting for someone other than the presidential candidate who won that state's popular vote. Uh, the court found there's nothing in the Constitution that expressly prohibited states from taking away the presidential elector's voting discretion. And specifically that uh, Article 2, Section 1, along with the 12th Amendment, gave the states broad power over electors and gave the electors themselves no rights. And that pledge laws, such as the Washington's, can sanction an elector for breaching his promise were actually in accord with the Constitution. So as I was... What do you think about that decision? Do you believe it was rightly decided, or does it raise concerns with you? So, well, you know, this here's what I'm going to say. So I don't know if you're aware, but as of July of 2020, there are 15 states as long as well as the District of Columbia that have joined what is known as the National Popular Voter State Interstate Compact mm-hmm. that, that re- would require those states that are part of those compact to act together and then pledge require their state's electors to follow not the outcome of their individual state election, but to pledge to uh, vote for the winner of the whole national vote as a whole. That's the change that these states are attempting to do. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, they they um, represent uh, less than 270, and the, the compact would not come into effect until enough states join the compact that they would have a 270 vote Mm -hmm. majority uh, amongst Mm -hmm. themselves. So Mm -hmm. now this begs the question, like, well, can states do this? Can states force their electors to not, uh, to pledge to vote, not in accordance with their state's outcome of the state's election, but to pledge to vote in accordance with the overall national vote totals? Um, So what do you think? And well, that's I mean, people would that that was already unprocessed anyways. And then this decision comes after the Supreme Court that says states have broad mm-hmm. discretion to force mm-hmm. their electors to do basically whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually think this Supreme Court case would go a long way to uh, in f- giving credence to this to this compact. Um, there are uh, some people that would argue that the compact would have to be ratified by Congress in order to become enforceable. But mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't looked. Into, admittedly, I don't. Uh, I don't know the, if that's true or not. But certainly, I think this case says states can really force the hand of of um, electors. Because had it been the other way, mm-hmm. you know, you could have had sort of election chaos, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, people go to the polls to vote. They vote for a person, and then you know, all of a sudden, boom! Like, you know, I think they, it raises an interesting legal question and then I think it it raises an interesting non-legal question. Okay, this decision or the compact which which are you referring to or both? Both. Okay. I because the the two of them flow together. Okay. As a legal question on the face of it it's, it appears to be something that would be workable because the same logic that supports the broad discretion of a state to enforce its will upon the electors mm-hmm. um, 
would also flow if they did something like that. Um, because again, originally before it started trending the the you know towards popular, you know following popular popular vote early on, it was originally intended to be you know legislators would oppose uh, appoint yeah. them. Um, that said, um, I think if something like that happened, then that would be one of the first things that would trigger possible objection processes of happening mm-hmm. um, at the <clears throat> con- more f- congressional more f- level. More frequently is what you're talking about. When it, they go. It, well, the first time it happened, I think it would be, it, you know, it's a possible constitutional crisis in the man- making, frankly, mm-hmm. you know, especially in the polarized times in which we live mm-hmm. of, I think you'd have a lot of people, you know, you talk about, you know, you make these, you know, you hear right now people talking about possible violence on their, you know, following an election. Mm -hmm. If you had a really close election and the electoral college would show one person winning and all of a sudden. Electoral college as it, as it stands today. As it it stands today and has stood for 200 plus years. Mm -hmm. Um, And then this state compact, not including all of the states, Outside of a constitutional amendment process, do, you know, having a different winner as a result, mm-hmm. I think, you know, you're talking <laughs> about the potential of literally all hell breaking loose. Yeah. And so I hope that these states know what they're doing when they're literally playing with fire. Mm-hmm. And then number two, the discussion that we've just been having about the one person, one vote almost completely flips on its head here. Mm-hmm. You know, say you are from one of these states you vote for candidate x your whole state overwhelmingly votes for candidate x mm-hmm. you know you you vote for jim jim yeah. is your candidate he wins 60 percent of your vote but your state is in this times, compact yeah and, and suddenly and, and your vote, sally wins the whole national vote yeah your vote yeah. To, to make up for <laughs> the hurt feelings mm-hmm. of some other states whose electoral college votes otherwise went differently than they would have anticipated mm-hmm. your vote is you know essentially being completely discarded so you know mm-hmm. in trying to seek the i don't know i i th- i personally outside of the legal context feel like you know for those who oppose the electoral college if you're going to overturn it there are arguments to do so, mm-hmm. but the responsible way to do so is in a straightforward manner. Yeah. You know, of having the public discussion, having the public debate. Yeah. And, and I'm always a constitutional fan of, amendment. You set I mean, the if, rules before you know the outcome. Yeah. And that's one of the big problems I've had with the discussions lately about the Electoral College is they appear to be more linked, you know, with some individuals more towards frustration with a particular outcome more than, you know, for the duration of our society. Cause again, mm-hmm. it's like, if you're going to do it, I think you have to do it straightforwardly. I think the best way to do it would be a constitutional process that, mm-hmm. you know, get it, sure. you know, make a constitutional amendment, which is how it's been changed in the past mm-hmm. and, and have everyone know that it will affect future elections it's not something intended to change the rules on an election that's already happened. Because I mean, yeah. that's the only way I think you could really change a rule like that that's been so longstanding mm-hmm. is to do it in a straightforward manner, prospectively, yeah. and not reactively. So in talking about you know Electoral College like we have been, I wanted to just sort of bring up this recent case in the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. 
a 9-0 decision, which doesn't happen very often in, in modern yeah. times. So when it does happen, it's really worth taking note. Now, yeah. the and, 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 and because, you know, we might get in a situation again where after this election, people start talking about, oh, well, maybe the electors will, will be faithless and they'll, you know, they'll shift and whatnot. So not every state has any kind of requirements. I mean, I think there's like 30 or 35 that have some sort of pledge requirement. So there 26. are those. 26. Oh, 26. 26. Okay. 26. All right. So there are those states out there that there's nothing binding the electors to do anything. Now, the Supreme Court has said that states can do that. They can mm -hmm. not only make them take, there's an earlier Supreme Court case that said they can require a pledge of uh, to follow the popular vote. And this more recent one said, you know, and they're able to punish them if they don't follow the, the vote, you know. Um, but, you know, or, or replace, re, replace the, recall the, that elector and replace it with a different mm -hmm. elector who will follow uh, the pledge. Um, but that's not uniform through all the states. So I, I well, wanted to sort of set this tone and, to be. you know, yeah, but I wanted to, I wanted to sort of talk about today, you know, because I feel like there's a high probability that, that we may be having these conversations again. I mean, I hope not. I hope it's a very clear outcome. That would be great. But in the event that it's not, you know, um, there's, there's a real probability that, that we'll be talking about electors and requirements and whether or not, you know, an elector has to be faithful or not, and really that boils down to if an elector has to be faithful or not comes down to what state that elector is coming from and what the state laws are that requirements for electors in that state. It's not a national requirement. In a way, my perception of domestic politics is that, regardless of that case, mm -hmm. the why is it that more more states? than 26 plus DC don't have such laws is because it's so little at issue. I mean, frankly, you know, the case you talked about where the penalty mm -hmm. is a thousand dollars for the yeah. stakes we're yeah. talking about and you know, the level of income that those individuals probably have a thousand dollars is a practically chunk change yeah. in reality. And you can tell me if you think I'm wrong here, the, the real deterrent for those electors not flipping is not the state law or, you know, or fine or penalty or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's who they are and what yeah. the real consequences is. State electors who are elected to vote for a certain candidate are typically members of, you know, they're pretty well connected political individuals who are party faithful, who are, have spent a large portion of their lives networking, building connections, building credibility with a particular party. Yeah. And, for a member of that party who was nominated to serve as an elector, who was appointed as an elector, mm -hmm. boast, but based almost entirely like, on their status within the party and then going up and doing the exact opposite of what they are sent there to do, the $1,000 is the least of the price that they will pay. <laughs> That's I true. mean, yeah. if you were someone who is like a Republican Party chair, Mm -hmm. And you know, in a in a particular state, and you go up to the state capitol and you vote for the Democrat, uh, I don't think you're going to continue to have a successful political future in your state Republican Party. You're probably done. And so, I that's what I think that's the main reason it's so rare, not because of the fines and penalties, but mm -hmm. because um, the nature of who these individuals are and the real world connections they have are 
far greater in their influence than the state penalties that uh, they're going to face if they go a different direction. No, I, I, I agree with you. It's, it, but, it, but it's just from an academic standpoint, can a state punish a faithless mm-hmm. elector for not being mm-hmm. faithful? Uh, Supreme Court says yes, but that doesn't mean every state has has it on the books as far as uh, you know punishments or even pledges required. Right. I mean, there's there are plenty of states out there that can, electors can literally do whatever yeah. they want. So, oh, and I, you know, and I, I would have been surprised if the Supreme Court went the other way on that because again, like when when those provisions of the Constitution were written, mm-hmm. um, it was pretty expressive. The compromise was hmm. that. They were going to give heavy influence to the state legislators, and, and you know, mm-hmm. and to preserve their interests and their 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 you know their ability to advocate as states, and not you know as individuals. So just and a so I would have been surprised if it went the other way. Just a programming note: um, I was looking at a uh, article here that said thirty-two states have some sort of faithless elector law, but only really? but only fifteen of those remove, penalize, or simply cancel the votes of faithless electors. So even even if you have a pledge of some sort, only 15 of them, uh, Michigan, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, Indiana, Minnesota, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, Washington, California, New Mexico, South Carolina, Oklahoma, and North Carolina are the states that have some sort of penalty for failing to follow through. Um, oh, in one form or another. I must have had out-of-date so, information. That's all right. It's, you know, um, I just don't want to get we're, – we're trying to cram a lot of like yeah. uh, information into it. Hopefully, it will be at least somewhat entertaining um, or informative. This is one of our more educational episodes. Podcast. But, but I don't know. I mean, I think we you know some things to think about. Here, here's at a minimum. This at least hopefully gives a few people something to listen to while they're voting tomorrow if they have not already voted. And so I'm going to mm-hmm. end this podcast with the plea that just if you well, haven't voted, let's not. I want to oh, you end yet? Okay, all right. Throw it out there because right. I was going to say I think one of the strongest arguments that someone could bring now against electoral college is that for people who are, you know, very much into the historical aspects and the conversations of how different parts of the Constitution came about. I think it's pretty hard to argue that the electoral electoral college today is working as intended because, Mm -hmm. you know, generally that time, one of the things that the founders took as a a given and were completely wrong about, and we've read several (laughs) papers where they hinted at it was this idea of like, you know, you're going to have these upright, moral, skilled individuals who are just going to do everything for the good of the country. And that's all they're going to think about. And like, mm-hmm. there's factions, but and no nowhere have we seen so far that political parties are part of anything. Mm-hmm. So similarly, when and I we'll have to remember this, and when we get into 39 and 68, um, expressly in the Federalist Papers, when they discuss this electoral college system, um, it's pretty consistent with the other things that Madison and Hamilton talk about, which is. You're going to have these wise wise men who are so well educated, just completely benevolent, and, yeah, and have the best interests of the country at heart, and they're going to come together and be so informed and so civic minded that they're just going to get together, like you know, a Greek assembly, or you know, 
of the wisest minds in Athens and deliberate and just choose among choose among their collective knowledge the best president. Mm-hmm. And when you read 3968 and other Federalist writings, nowhere in there is there a discussion or a given that the, they're just a bunch of political hacks who are going to do what their state tells them to do and check a box. I mean, it's largely a ceremonial <laughs> function. I mean, in, in modern American politics, it's largely yeah. a ceremonial networking function where there's no there's no thought about what who you're actually going to vote for. You just go up there and you vote for your state vote for, and you sit down and you meet a bunch of fun people in your mm-hmm. party and you go home. Mm-hmm. But as originally conceived, no, it was not going to be like that. They were designed to be this council of elders who would make the best choices for all of America. Mm-hmm. And that's not what we have. It's easy to understand that's not why we have. Well, we, well it's easy to understand that's not what we're using because could you imagine the chaos? It's hard enough to get people to be informed about just the actual political candidates on their ballot, especially as you go down the ballot into like local city council, your state rep and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And when all these candidates expressly are shooting informative campaign material at you all the time, telling you what they stand for, <laughs> what they don't. Can yeah. you imagine if you had to like decide and vote on, you know, however many electors the state of Ohio has, like you had to like go and find like this giant pool of nobodies that you've never heard of mm-hmm. who have no advertising budget. And you got to decide which one of them or which 20, some of them, best represents what you want in state government and just hope, hope that they're wise. (laughs) And then they're going to Columbus, Ohio in December, and they're just going to vote for whoever they feel like based on you thinking they're pretty wise. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine the chaos? Like it would be a lottery ticket literally every four years. Yeah. Like you have what you're only voting for them. You're not voting for president. And mm-hmm. they're just going to go exercise their own independent judgment. I mean, that sounds crazy to me. Now, granted, I'm an American living in 2020, but that yeah. sounds crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or just, you know, I can only imagine the chaos that would ensue if there were just mass amounts of faithless electors in one election, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, like if the state of I don't know, uh, pick a state. I don't know. Let's um, Rhode Island. Rhode Island. All right. Rhode okay. Islanders. Let's go back to Rhode Island. So I imagine that the, the 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 three Rhode Islanders would get in their boat and grab their muskets out of the museum and head to DC if if uh, their three electors or however many electors they have, uh, <laughs> you know, decided to go and and vote red as opposed to blue. You know, because yeah. that state's perpetually blue. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Assuming, assuming they could They'd navigate the waters, <laughs> they would lose their mind. Yeah. They may pick up some hams on the way, you know. Um. I think without a like constitutional level change or wildly unpredictable success of like this interstate compact. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a constitutional amendment proposed in the, in the by a, a representative in the House in 2019 to like just abolish the electoral college altogether, but that didn't go anywhere. Um, yeah. So, you know, it it there are attempts to modify it. There are attempts to get rid of it altogether. Um, but it, it is sort it, of where it's at. Get rid yeah. of it. I think they'd want to do it up front because the uh, like this interstate compact. I think you know groups like that play with fire. Yeah. Just because, like, I mean, it sounds. I mean, 
it sounds like it was a bunch of democratic leading states based on the assumption that oh yeah no i if, if my memory serves me it was the like the the states uh democratic states in the dc like after the 2016 election said okay guys yeah. we're gonna band together yeah. um and so the assumption <laughs> is you know the democratic candidate's always gonna win i wonder if that it would be curious to see if that presumption was ever reversed if they would feel so strongly still that's always the that's always the real litmus test in politics is yeah. If you're willing to commit to a process before when you're not certain of the outcome, yeah. that always lends a lot more credibility. And that's why I say that, like, if it happens, it should mm -hmm. be a straightforward process in which so there's a lot of public discussion and it doesn't apply for like 10 years or something. All that said, I will now go back to my earlier plea that that Carrie interrupted. Thanks, Carrie. I have um, no more interruptions. <laughs> Except that one. So, <laughs> um, just that was if, a compliment. That yeah, was thank, a support. All right, thank you. Um, if if you haven't voted yet, tomorrow's the day. You got to get out there. You got to vote. Stand in line. You know, uh, I can't tell you how important it is. Um, you know, I know that when I was younger, I didn't quite feel that way. I felt like, hey, you know, the Electoral College, I'm not really electing the president anyway. So, you know, um, it, it sort of made me less inclined to vote. Um, but as I get older, I realize how important it really is. So um, vote, vote, vote. If you haven't voted, uh, get out there and vote. Just one time. I'm I, not advocating more than one vote. Just one vote. <laughs> okay. But I get join you on that, and I extend it to even if you live in a state where you feel like you have zero chance of affecting the presidential election, Yeah. your local... Oh, yeah. No, go. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Vote for your city council. Vote for your school board. We live in a time dog catcher, where whatever the local yeah. affects people more and more, and they're starting to realize it. And vote yeah. your conscience. Vote your principles. Mm -hmm. And if you get nothing out of outside of it, then you get what I get out of it, which is feeling the self righteous disability to complain about everyone you disagree with, which is usually <laughs> everyone. So vote for yourself if no one else. To get uh, the ability to complain about all the people you didn't vote for who are doing things that are obviously foolish. There you go. <laughs> so on that uh, very upbeat uh, message from Carrie, uh, we're gonna. You also get stickers. <laughs> what did you say? What I said. You also get stickers. There you go. Stick. I mean, I mean, the sticker makes you it always well. You know, your children. There you go. Um, you can come home, and tell you saying the kid, and say, "Don't say I never got you anything." You know, here's a free sticker. There you go. Um, <laughs> anyways, we're rambling on. Uh, thanks for anybody who's still out there listening. I know we just posted an episode that we originally recorded like over a year ago now. Um, last fall was, was difficult and obviously 2020 is been 2020 and it's a hellscape out there. I hope everybody is okay and surviving. Uh, sorry, obviously to anybody, if our hearts go out to anybody who's been affected too terribly by this year. Um, Definitely. but hang in there. Uh, there will be, hopefully be brighter days in the future and, uh, make tomorrow a good one. Get out there and vote if you haven't voted. Uh, we have more episodes already recorded, uh, and we will be publishing them hopefully in a semi, you know, uh, uh, frequent and, and regular basis. Um, and then we're going to continue to record more uh, and get those out as well. So um, we're going to try to not go dark again, uh, but Carrie and I just do this out of just for the fun of it. Um, uh, nothing monetized here. We're just we're just two guys. So, um, 
We so, are that. <laughs> <laughs> and and with that, we'll say uh, you know good night and good luck and and see you guys God next time. <laughs> see you on the other side of the election, guys. All right, <laughs> take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye.